there and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, a podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we're going to hear from UK-based Simon Penson, who sold his content marketing agency for just over 20 million pounds back in 2016. But before we get there, during his interview with John, at the end, he mentioned an article he wrote years after the sale, which details the challenges he faced personally as a founder after selling his company. And now I actually found that article and linked it in the show notes section of this podcast, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Quick reminder, if you're not subscribed to Build to Sell Radio, to hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. We've learned that just under 40% of you who listen to the podcast every week aren't subscribed. So if you wouldn't mind hitting that subscribe button, it will truly help our show grow. So thank you so much for being a valued Built to Sell Radio listener. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Simon Penson, who in 2009 founded Zazzle Media, which at the time was one of the very first content marketing agencies in the UK. Now, during today's episode, I want you to listen in for Simon's advice on how to fast track your company's growth through partnerships, how to win larger customers using an unconventional tactic, how to utilize a unique pricing structure to sell the big brands, and how to avoid losing millions in an earnout. Here to share with you the full story is Simon Penson. Enjoy. Simon Penson, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, well, thank you for having me, John. Looking forward to uh, chatting for the next 30, 40 minutes or so. Yeah, for sure. So Zazzle Media, describe this business for us. What was the business model? Yeah, it seems like a long time ago now. But um, so Zazzle was an interesting name, interesting uh, story behind where that came from over a bottle of red wine. But um, Zazzle was probably one of, if not the world globe's first true kind of digital content marketing agencies seems like a really obvious thing to say now because everybody knows what content marketing is but kind of back in 2008 social didn't really exist the the commercial internet was still in its infancy really um people weren't particularly investing in it my background was a journalist and i could see that people weren't investing in content and content was the only real thing that provided businesses with audience and the only thing of value to a business's audience um, and so we started to develop a kind of set of services really around that. And um, so, yeah, that's what really what Zazzle became ultimately was a content marketing agency um, and one of the first to do that. And at, at some point, you merged with another great company named Sticky Eyes. Just maybe describe, if you could, what precipitated the merger with Sticky Eyes. Yeah, a good question. And, you know, quite a journey. Um, so we, we started ultimately at the beginning of 2009 and we grew slowly because, you know, there was a lot of education required from what we were doing because we were selling something that people didn't necessarily knew existed or they needed. So we grew really slowly, but then, of course, we grew really fast. Um, and we ended up in a really tricky spot, actually, where we um, had become scaled enough to get in front of um, some really great brands with some really good budgets. But because we were doing something new and because we weren't quite big enough to get through procurement, marketing teams were really leaning in and going, we've got to have what you do. We love it. Um, but the 
the kind of procurement teams, et cetera, weren't feeling that we were quite big enough and, you know, established enough to work with, with the substantial budgets that they were talking about. Um, How big were you at the time? Uh, I mean, so by this point, this was like sort of 2014 time. So we were kind of four or five years in and we were probably 50 people, I would say, by this point, 40 to 50 people. Um and we were doing some really great stuff. Um, as I said, you know, we were, we were being asked as thought leaders, I guess, in the space as well to do a lot of speaking. And, you know, we did a lot of education stuff around making people realize what could be done. And that's why we were getting in these rooms, ultimately. Uh, and what, during that time, it was probably actually the most frustrating period of my professional career, I have to say, because... You know, we were doing amazing things. The people that actually we wanted to sell to and wanted to buy from us wanted us, but then other people were getting in the way. And we were like, well, that's kind of chicken and egg. How do you solve that conundrum? Um, and, you know, it was during that period actually where we, we would get inbound kind of M&A kind of inquiries, as most half-decent businesses do, um, throughout, you know, for the last kind of two or three years of that, that kind of stage that we were at, that phase. But one of them came through um, fairly consistently from Sticky Eyes, and they were a business that had grown quite big on the kind of the older kind of performance marketing model, um, but didn't particularly know what content marketing was in the same way. But they'd scaled a little bit bigger than us, and they've got some really good enterprise clients. So they'd broken through that glass ceiling in a different way. Um, single founder that side, single founder for me in Zazzle. Um, and over a kind of a four to six month period, we kind of figured out that actually coming together made lots of sense. There was some cultural um, differences, but actually we thought that it, we would meld quite well together. Um, we would have two offices. They were about 60, 70 people. We were sort of 50, 55 by this point. Um, so two offices, you know, kind of a really compelling proposition around, you know, kind of performance marketing and content marketing. Um, you know, real, you know, really big independent for the UK. Um, and that conversation ended up ultimately in his merging in sort of, I think it actually merged in May 2015, if my memory serves me correctly. Um, and that got us over that hump ultimately. I've got so many questions about that. Mm, sorry. Sorry to interrupt, Simon. I've got so many questions about, about that because I think a lot of our listeners would have contemplated at some point the possibility of joining up with somebody else in in a merger, kind of almost a merger of equals or or you know similar size company where instead of a lot of cash changing hands, it's really let's join forces and 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 and, and be bigger and take on and be able to win bigger and bigger customers. So I think it's it's a it's a topic that a lot of our listeners have considered. I think the the challenge that I think some of them might be feeling is going from, you know, chief cook and bottle washer, the, the, the primary equity holder, being able to make all the decisions to, to the idea that of having a partner and, and potentially not having the sort of veto rights to make any decision that they want. What were, what were your thoughts as you, as you contemplated this, potential merger like how, how did you reconcile in your own mind how your role would change if you were to do this merger it's a good question um 
we spent a lot of time. I said the, the kind of the conversation went on for four to six months, mainly for that reason, because I think it was really, really key for us to define our roles within it and how that would work. Obviously, we were minority, you know, they were bigger than us. So, you know, I had to, for one, go from a scenario, like you say, when, you know, I called all the shots and, you know, for the better or worse, you know, that's how it was, um, to one where I didn't. And, um, you know, they had a really good, strong senior team as well, which, you know, I knew that I could actually learn some stuff from, you know, I didn't know everything. So that was really compelling for me because, you know, the journey for me was as much about, you know, becoming better than it was about, you know, making something that was worth lots of money. Um, and yeah, so we went through a process of really carefully understanding exactly what the role would be and how it would work and how it would interact and um, interface with, you know, the rest of the senior team on both sides of the business. Um, and, you know, sort of drawing up a fairly detailed integration plan, actually, before we started pressing the button. And then from obviously, then it's not just about us. It's about, you know, getting buy in then from the senior team. So then we would slowly let in, you know, a few senior people into that conversation so that they felt like they had a, a part, some ownership of the plan as well. It wasn't just, you know, dictated to them. So we slowly bought, bought and brought people into that plan. Um, and then ultimately, you know, on sort of D-Day, you then, you know, spend a lot of time with the teams making them feel like it really is a compelling story, which we truly believed, you know, and it turned out to be that it was, right? Um, you know, those things came true. But what you know, else, Sorry. I was going to say, what else did you consider at that time? So you, you had these conversations with Sticky Eyes going over four to six months and they sounded like they were fairly comprehensive were you also entertaining other potential M&A options at that time? We'd had inbounds, definitely. Um, but I, um, we, P was interested as well, but I just, I, I didn't see the value in it really particularly because as I said, we weren't, we weren't at a stage where we were fully scaled out in terms of value. So, you know, we had inbounds, but, you know, we, we weren't at the size that I wanted us to be. We hadn't achieved all the things that we knew we could and should. So I didn't really take too much time around those kind of, you know, full on kind of, we'll just sell direct offers. Um, PE, I looked at a little bit, but it came, it was pretty simple to me in that, you know, like I couldn't see where the value add was outside of money. And that at that stage wasn't really what we needed. What we needed was this ability to find a level of scale relatively quickly so we could sell to enterprise. And then we knew that, you know, as has happened, you know, we went from, you know, a, a small number of million pounds a year business to one that, you know, ultimately scaled to, you know, over 20 million a year. Um, and so, you know, it, that, that kind of theory proved out that I think it was the right choice in the end. Not that it was an easy road, of course, but... Um, We'll be back to the show in just a flash. Before we go there, I wanted to tell you about a new software application that I've been working on for the last couple of years. It's called VidGuide. And it's an application that allows you to create and integrate video-based instructions directly into the software applications your employees use daily. Think about it as a tool to implement the built-to-sell methodology right inside your company. With VidGuide, your employees have the guidance to complete everyday tasks inside your company without guessing, so your business can thrive without you. 
With VidGuide's Google Chrome extension, your instructions will automatically appear as your employees use the tools they need to do their jobs, whether it's QuickBooks or HubSpot, Salesforce, and just about every software package imaginable. We integrate with literally tens of thousands of SaaS applications. If you use it to run your company, we integrate with it. Employees will always have access to your latest instructions and you'll know exactly who has viewed your instructions and when. As a Built to Sell Radio listener, I wanted to give you a free trial so you can see what we've been up to. Just go to vidguide.com slash free. That's vidguide.com slash free to get your free trial today. Now back to the show. You mentioned you were 40 to 50 employees at the time. What turnover would you've had roughly you know, before doing the uh, Sticky Eyes deal? Yeah, good question. A little while ago now. Uh, I think we were at about four million pounds turnover, just maybe slightly less, three and a half to four million pounds top line. We were, we were very, very um, profitable. You know, we had really good agency sort of 30, 40% margins. Um, at that stage, maybe slightly higher actually, um, because you know we were run very leanly, um, and we hadn't particularly started to invest in the kind of the enterprising, the back office stuff, which we would have done had we continued on our own route. But obviously, the beauty of the merger was that actually Sticky Eyes had had already done that because they they were a little bit further on in the growth. They were say sixty to seventy people and had been bigger actually. Um, and then, you know, kind of share that kind of, you know, back office overhead a little bit across a, you know, a bigger re- revenue number, which was helpful for both sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So you're, you're around 4 million pounds. They're bigger, but, but merging together allows you to take advantage of some economies of scale, some back office economies of scale, but also go after some of these larger accounts that are that are kind of putting procurement as their sort of objection to being able to buy from you. And and it's interesting because procurement like you were a 40 person shop. You weren't a startup with yeah. a, you know a business card and they're in your back, you know, spare bedroom. You had a, a significant enterprise yet Procurement was still sort of giving you a hard time. Um, I'm surprised actually that they that they were still um, not re- you know recognizing you as a legitimate provider, given the size of company that you had. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a very that's why it was so difficult. I think for me, and I also wonder um, uh, retrospectively if age was a point because I mean I was. 30, what would I have been there? Sort of 33, 34 years old. Um, and, it, you know, relatively inexperienced, I guess, in reality. You know, this thing had taken off relatively quickly. And that, that possibly played into it as well. You know, I, I do remember, and there will be a couple of colleagues of mine that were in the room at the same time that will, if they're listening, remember this very well. And I won't name the brand, but we were in London pitching in this big boardroom pitching to a big hotel group and you know we we pitched this big plan and it was you know it would have been a million pound a year plus account um you know which would have been transformational obviously to us at the you know the scale that we were at and you know they they were you know eating out of their hands it was you know the talk about leaning it was you know that 
we, we were almost high-fiving each other um, at the end of it. And we came out of it going, wow, this is just going to be absolutely transformational for us. And then, you know, reality bit. And um, I think that was the moment that I was like, you know, I, we need, I need to find another route here because this is just going to be, this is going to send me crazy and insane. Um, if this continues, when you say reality bit, what do you mean by that? That that we were in this chicken and egg scenario. You know, how do you solve that problem where you know the people that want to buy from you want to buy from you, but then the business is behind them, their back office is getting in the way of you, and so I needed a different sort of plan. I needed to either take on money, or sell a business, or find some way of you know partnering with something. Yeah, and your and your sense was that procurement was saying Zazzle's too small, too young, but not only that, Simon personally is too young and inexperienced. Like they were evaluating you as an individual as opposed to your company. Am I getting that part correct? I, I mean, yeah. I mean that that's the sense that I got. Um, I don't know whether that is the reality or not. We never ask those questions, um, but that is definitely a possibility. You know, I was a, I was a CEO of a business that had grown really quickly, you know, in their eyes, to a decent scale, but didn't perhaps have the track record behind us to prove that it's not going to fall over tomorrow. It didn't, but you know, that could have been their view, right? So, I was very eyes open to that challenge. Going back to the deal structure with Sticky Eyes. Uh, you mentioned you became a minority shareholder, and and we've talked about this on this show before. But of course, the the, the challenge with being a minority shareholder in a privately held business is that unless you structure it in a specific way, there's there's very little liquidity in that. It's not like you have shares in a public company you could choose to sell when you choose. When you're the minority shareholder, you're you're sort of at the beck and call or at the whim of the majority shareholder as it relates to uh, to mm-hmm. lots of things, including making you know turning your equity into cash. And I'd I'd love to explore that because I think it it puts off a lot of the owners on our show uh, the idea that they would become a minority shareholder in a privately held business and there's no liquidity. So. There's lots of questions I have around that. So maybe we can just explore for a minute how you thought about that and, and maybe protected yourself to some extent against that as a potential risk. What, what were your thoughts there? Yeah, it, it consumed my every thought, I think, through the process in reality, because, you know, that's the big thing you're giving away is control, isn't it? I think we touched on that earlier. Um, I think... I mean, again, you know, you have to think back a little bit, but there there was always a clear and honest conversation around the fact that, you know, we knew that in coming together, we would be sticking our head above the parapet and um, become right-sized for decent acquisition opportunity because, you know, as you and I both know, internal M&A teams at bigger, you know, holding groups um, and, you know, kind of acquirers, want to do deals that are above a certain size because otherwise it's just not efficient for them to do that. Um, and I think we tick that What box. size? I mean, in marketing, I think, you know, you, you see deals done all the time in a business that's, you know, like kind of one, one million pound EBITDA businesses, but they're kind of, you know, 
done by relatively smaller groups, you know, that roll up kind of organizations, that kind of stuff, or they're, you know, just simple bolting strategic acquisitions. Whereas, you know, we wanted to be a bit more substantial than that. Um, and so to do that, we wanted to, you know, we, we knew that we'd be able to get there by combining together. And, you know, we were almost, you know, almost eight figures top line and, you know, did, you know, really good margin on bottom line. So all of a sudden we were right size for the holding groups and, um, separately sticky eyes had had some inbound as well. And so there was a kind of an open conversation a little bit there with some, you know, we, we had some advisors alongside us that saying that if you do this, and I think there's a really good appetite, really good chance that that appetite may grow that you've seen collectively because you're, what you're doing is creating something really compelling. So we were, had a really honest, open conversation about that. And um, ultimately, I guess it's why, you know, we, we merged in the May 15 and by August 16, the deal had closed. So, you know, that often doesn't happen from a standard start. What was your expectation around what you were worth independently as Zazzle before, you know, the sticky eyes merger on a multiple of EBITDA, what, 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 what do you think you could have gotten, if you will, um, you know, at, at three and a half to 4 million pounds turnover versus 10 million turnover or close, close thereof. Uh, like what's, what's the, the increase in multiple that you would expect between those two businesses? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And, I, and obviously the, the world of uh, multiples changes and over time. And, you know, if you'd asked me six months ago, you know, you could have talked about a business like that getting at least 10 times, whereas now it's probably more like, you know, in terms of the, you know, the, the, the scale business, um, you know, maybe seven to eight times at the moment. Um, whereas I think the Got small... So the, so the low- Sorry. No, no, go ahead. So the smaller, uh, so the larger business might might garner seven to eight times EBITDA, and what would you expect for the smaller? I think you'd be somewhere between, because obviously with agencies as well, right? There's 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 upfront consideration, and then there's earnout, isn't there? But I think combined, you're probably looking at somewhere between four to six in reality for the smaller business. Got it. So you were making the case to yourselves, uh, you and Sticky Eyes, that not only could we eliminate some of the back office and and potentially eliminate this procurement objection, but also if and when we decide to sell, we're going to get a better multiple. And so our shareholding collectively will be worth more. Uh, Absolutely. will be worth more than if we just sold independently. Yeah. yeah Got that it. Was That's super helpful. What was the hardest part for you during that one year period where you were the minority shareholder? So there's all the stuff you did in advance to sort of think it through and and so forth, but you did the deal. And I'd be curious to know what was the hardest part for that year where you were the minority shareholder? I think... In all honesty, I didn't have a huge amount of time to worry about that because there was so much to do. So actually, I think going into it, I suspected that it may be a big issue for me, you know, the loss of control as an entrepreneur and all of those kind of things. Um, but because we were so busy on integration and then on sale, um, actually, there wasn't a huge amount of time to stop and think. I think when I did do that, 
you know, and there were occasions where, you know, I would kind of do that a little bit and kind of put my arms around stuff because, you know, I felt like I was losing control and, you know, therefore the decision-making wasn't quite as objective as it probably should have been. Um, but then, you know, you also, I think, you know, I learned a lot as a kind of a, a leader about that. So I think there was some really valuable lessons actually from that in a positive way. Um, and so we kind of went through that process, you know, running at a thousand miles an hour. So it didn't really become the issue that I thought that it might. Had I stopped or had we not, had we had longer, perhaps, it perhaps may have begun entrenching a little bit. But because we had so much going on, it wasn't quite the issue that I suspected that it might be. The merged entity. So you were a minority shareholder in the merged entity. How many other shareholders were there? So we had a we had quite an expanded options pool actually, because um, which is a you know something I would definitely um, do and do advise you know agency people to do this right now because it's you know people are your capital and you know they have legs right and walk out the door. So tying the, your key kind of senior team down you know via some options is a, is a really smart thing to do. And so there were a number of. Um, people with very, very, you know, really varying levels of, you know, kind of option value really um, on both sides. Um, less so on the Zazzle side, actually, because the team was smaller, more so on the CQI side because it was an older business and there were more people. Um, so, you know, maybe in terms of, you know, really game-changing kind of um, shareholder shareholder value, there was there were maybe – half a dozen maybe, maybe not quite that many, four or five. Um, and then there was kind of a, you know, then a couple of layers below that of kind of people that, you know, would take maybe tens of thousands off the table in a sale. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a there's a team of stakeholders, I'll call them, shareholders, you know, options holders, you know, stakeholders for, for shorthand. As you move forward as a combined entity, what was the trigger that made you start to explore selling the combined entity? As I said, I think, you know, even going through the conversation about merging, there was a, you know, a couple of live opportunities. And um, so it was kind of always an ongoing conversation quite quickly, you know, once we'd kind of shared the news and it went down really quite positively. We managed to sell that story rightly because it was true, um, you know, across the both organizations in a really positive way. So actually that kind of initial concern went away a little bit. Yes, of course, there were then the practicalities of, of uh, merging those two things together and, you know, creating, you know, shared kind of, you know, operations and all of those kind of good things. Um, but then relatively quickly, we started, you know, we, we had a really good CFO, it has to be said as well. It was really helpful because then he kind of really took up the mantle of um, kind of onboarding some advisors and, you know, starting a process that ultimately whittled down may, maybe only three serious kind of um, offers or, you know, kind of areas of parties of interest. Um, and so we spent quite a lot of time thinking about, you know, how we can position the business in the right way. Um, to make the most of that that kind of opportunity. So, so to be clear, almost immediately after you merged, you got on your front foot 
your CFO started to explore potential acquisition. So you were, um, there wasn't a big honeymoon period where you, you kind of combined together and started to work together. You were almost immediately into, okay, how do we position this combined entity for sale? Yes. Yeah. I mean, we'd had those conversations in that kind of four to six month period before we even came together. So, you know, it, it was it was a bit more organic than kind of, right, you know, now let's start immediately. It was kind of a natural process of, you know, there was kind of a, a live kind of interested party. Um, and, you know, so we just continued that conversation, realized that actually they were, you know, they, they really liked what we'd done with the combined business once we told them about it. Um and so, you know, obviously what you normally do, which is always good advice is, you know, once you've got one kind of indicative offer, um, you know, you then take it to market a little bit more widely to kind of, you know, flush out any kind of further opportunity and create some competitive tension. Um, and, you know, that's kind of how it played out really. And actually really interestingly, the original party ended up being the acquirer. I've got so many questions about that. Before we go though, you mentioned uh, the rationale for for merging with Sticky Eyes uh, again. The the getting past the procurement objection, also some some advantages around uh, you know minimizing your expenses on the back office, and then this combined, you would be worth more. Could you, for our listeners, try to quantify the size of the slices? Like when you were thinking about merging with Sticky Eyes, like of those three reasons to do the deal, which was the, like, were they equal roughly in your mind, a third, a third, a third, or was there one that was much more dominant, much more appealing, much more important to the, to the rationale? It was, yeah. So just, so yeah, just, just go through the slices as you see them and I'll, I will put them in order for you. Just so I'm clear, I'll give you a quick uh, answer. Yeah. So, so number one, yeah, number one procure, procurement, uh, yeah. being a larger business that procurement people would would agree to to buy from. Number two, some back office efficiencies, so eliminating some redundancies and just being more efficient on the back office. And number three, the M and A value proposition, i.e., being more valuable as a combined entity. Yeah, I, I thought I'd probably add one more actually as well. In that, you know, for me, the journey was very much about becoming better at what I did. And, you know, there were some experienced people, and, I, you know, still are a few of them are left um, in the Sticky Eyes business. And I felt that I could, you know, I could definitely lean on their experiences and become better myself. So that was also a consideration, a lesser one, but worth, worth adding to the pot. But going back to your original question, I would say that. The, the, you know, the single motivation to begin the conversation was the, you know, the, the frustration around being able to do what we were really good at for the biggest brands on earth. I mean, we, you know, I used to talk to our people very, a lot about the fact that, you know, it, I, I'd give the example of Ed Sheeran, actually, in that, you know, he was just as good a musician busking on the streets of, you know, wherever he was in Suffolk. Uh, you know, 15 years old as he was playing in Wembley. It's just that, you know, he he was given the, 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 you know, the keys to a record contract, which gave him the audience. And so individually and collectively, we were always very motivated by the fact that we wanted to do what we were really great at for the biggest audience possible. Our audience was working with big brands. And if we weren't able to do that, it was, you know, really, really um, kind of demotivating um, and kind of, you know, really pushed our mission statement. So, 
that was a really big reason. Um, and then the rest of it kind of was, you know, kind of objective, kind of, you know, just good business rationale, really, in that, you know, we didn't have to build out our own stuff separately. So that was also, you know, we could have done that, right? That wasn't impossible. We were a very profitable business and we could have afforded to do it. Um, but, you know, if there is a more efficient and effective way and it's already built, then we can utilize it. And why would you not do that? So I think, you know, the procurement thing was a was a major reason to begin the conversation. And then as we as that progressed, we went, well, actually, that, that's just logic. You know, we should do that for those reasons. So I think it probably played out like that. Yeah. You mentioned that you got a, an indication of interest uh, early in the process once you had combined. Do you recall roughly what multiple of EBITDA that would have been at, like a, a range or something kind of roughly where – where offers were coming in at once you'd combined? Uh, yeah, I mean, again, thinking back, I mean, yeah, I think what we did, I mean, because what, what normally happens in these, and, and so, you know, I, I spend time now with agencies um, that are in the process of selling and help that process because I've been through it. And, um, you know, so I still see this live now in that you, you usually have to make a decision because what you what what always happens with service businesses is because you know the, the capital is you know goodwill and people um, you know they want to tie you in often for two to four years and you know they want as much of the value in that period of time rather than up front so you, what you normally have to do is decide you know are you going to take more up front but then with much less potential in earnout. Or are you going to back yourselves and bet on yourselves to do really well and grow and deliver what you promised and talked about through the through the IM and the sales story? Are you actually going to deliver those numbers? Because if you truly believe it, then bet on yourselves and really negotiate around actually what could that look like. And I think we did the, the IM this. being an information memorandum, right? Yes, yes. Sorry, when you you know initially put that out to, to market around you know exactly who you are, what you look like, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, that's what we did. So, I mean, it, I, we, we took a much lower multiple, remembering back now, up front than we possibly could have done in a different shape of deal because, you know, we, we knew that we kind of almost, we didn't, I think what we'd done, which is really interesting, particularly for those people that are building those type of businesses, is that we invested more heavily than most people thought was sanity, if that makes sense. At the size that we were at, we had a really big, really experienced, expensive senior team collectively. Um, and But what that allowed us to do is then scale from where we were at the time, so which would have been, you know, that maybe, what, 130, 120, 130 people, 120 people, Um to, you know, by the end of the earnout, we were 270, I think, something like that. And it's because we'd invested up front rather than through the process that we were able to do that as efficiently and effectively as we did. So, yeah, so long story short, we took a lower multiple of, you know, I mean, what it was, something three, four times maybe up front, but with a then an opportunity to, you know, achieve a much greater multiple on the overall um, by delivering the numbers that we said that we would deliver um, through the sales process. It's a bit vague, but but we can unpack it for sure. How well, would the earnout piece have been structured? Uh, how, how would how would he, like 
for folks who've never gone through an earnout, maybe you can describe how it was structured uh, to, to enable you to do more than three or four times up front. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I have to say as well, and, you know, going through this process is one of the most fascinating things that I've ever done, because what you realize is that, you know, absolutely nothing about M&A when you come to sell a business. And actually, as a founder, it's an absolutely imperative skill if you want to see the value from the thing that you've built. And yet, you know, you're thrown into a room all of a sudden with, you know, a bunch of professional negotiators and you don't really know what language they're talking. So, it's a baptism of fire and why I've then spent the, you know, the, every moment since kind of learning that game. But um, what I think we, what I think we kind of realized is that we had a few different strings we could pull. And because we believed in the fact that we were going to grow and continue to grow and deliver on plan, actually we settled on um, a kind of uh, deal structure that basically watched our compound annual growth rate and margin on in a matrix so you can imagine a matrix um kind of with lots of different kind of sectors within it and long story short the higher the compound annual growth rate and the better the margin the further up the scale we ended up going so you'd start down here at the kind of three to four times multiple so if we didn't continue to grow, that's where we would end up, if that makes sense. But if we did grow and we grew it, you know, the kind of percentages per year that we thought that we would, we could end up, I think, I think the max was maybe eight times, I think, within that, within that um, matrix. And obviously we grew really significantly. And I think we got to seven and a half times, I think, by the time we ended up at the end of it. And, and times what? So, okay, so let's... I, I, Here's here's what I'm I'm curious about. If uh, I'm just gonna for round numbers, I realize your EBITDA was much larger than this, but just for round argument uh, dollars, it might serve to illustrate the point. If you had a million dollars of EBITDA going into the deal, and they're willing, so what I'm hearing you say is that going into the deal. With a million dollars of EBITDA, if if you're flat and don't do anything over the next three years, uh, we'll we'll pay you three to four times a million or three to four million dollars to the business. Correct. But if you grow it over time, we're going to pay up to eight times for that million dollars of EBITDA. Are they applying the eight times against the million dollars of EBITDA that you had in the beginning of the process or eight times the profitability of the company at the very end of the process? Absolutely. The latter. And that's why it was so compelling because, you know. The latter. Yeah. It's the latter, which is obviously really important to us because, you know, it was a much bigger number um, by the end of it. I mean, we... Unfortunately, I can't disclose the actual numbers, which is always, you know, the tricky thing. I know, I realize that and everybody wants to know. Um, I wish I could because, I, you know, no reason not. But, you know, it was just it was ne- never disclosed the deal size. Um, but we tripled, more than tripled EBITDA in that four-year period. Got it. And so, again, I'm curious to know how this works because you you didn't, Put a hundred percent of your equity in the back end. You took some cash off the table. Is that right? In the beginning right. of the transaction. Okay. 
in to the tune of sort of three to four times EBITDA. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so relatively small number, um, given you know, and uh, you know, in that scenario, in those deal structures for agencies, which is very normal, you are ultimately selling all of it, you know, with some consideration, you know, deferred basically based on this matrix. So it is a gamble because you know you could end up selling something that is, was incredibly valuable in reality for kind of the same numbers that you would have got had you just stayed alone and stayed small. So that was the risk. So, you know, we were very eyes open to that. Okay. So how is the, so let's, so let's say in my fictitious example, the beginning number is a million dollars EBITDA and they, and they say, we'll pay you a you know, minimum of, or a downstroke of four times EBITDA, right? Yeah. Up, and so that's $4 million. And, and let's say you grow the business to 2 million in EBITDA. We're willing to spend, give you eight times two if it's at a growth rate. So now we're at 16. Yeah. Is the 16, so they say, look, we've already paid you four. So it, the net is 12 or Correct. how do they arrive at, because they paid you some upfront, right? Yeah. So that, that's ultimately how it works. You're right. It's, you know, a, a total number minus what you've already had. And actually we had, so everything right, we completed in the, August and we took some initial then and then we basically I think there were two or even three kind of points at which there was a revaluation and um, uh, kind of payout period liquidation op- uh, opportunity within that kind of four-year period because the earnout went from 2016 to the end of 2020 um, which is obviously quite a long earnout in itself so there was a payment in the August um, a payment in the January um, of that year, basically because of the way the options worked, um, we wanted, I think, to you know make sure that there was another further payment quite soon because we basically uh, the way the options worked was that, that it was um, ratcheted based on certain levels of valuation. So certain certain groups of people started getting paid out once valuation got to a certain point. So by the end of that year, we knew we kind of allow some more people to get paid. So we negotiated in a further payment just a few months later. So it meant that a few more people, you know, had a bit of liquidation there, um, some upside. And then there was basically one in the middle of two years and then one at the end. That's an important nuance, obviously, for for listeners – there's between equity and options is equity is is equity you can it, it is it is actual uh, you know percentage of the business worth options is the option to buy a percentage at a predetermined price and if the if the price is is higher than what the current value of the the option is then clearly you would not exercise it but in your case because the business grew the option became valuable and you wanted to make sure that the option holders could liquefy some of that is that that's what I'm yeah, that, interpreting it correctly, Simon. Correct, and actually, um, and I think this would be helpful to um, to listeners. Um, the the way that we did the options um, kind of structure worked really well, actually, and you know, it's something that you know I, I will do again in the future. In that, you know, we we created a scenario and options pools where we basically said, right, the first X number of million is founder share, so like you say, equity, any equity holders, and then anything that grows the business from you know, I'll pick a random, this isn't, these weren't the real numbers, but $5 million to $10 million, then there's a ratchet there for those people in there. 
and the founders may that within that that ratchet give away twenty percent, you know, as an options pool. But then anything over ten million dollars would give away thirty percent, and that worked really well because what it did is it protected founders in terms of the you know the personal kind of value that we we felt like we wanted to see from the sale of the business, and then anything over and above was a bit of a bonus, right? But critically, it also then massively um, incentivized the team because they were fighting very, very hard because all of a sudden they could make their number, you know, exponentially bigger because they were seeing more and more upside the more the business grew. So that ended up being a really smart move. And actually to the point where I left the business a year early. So I left at the end of 2019 because by that point I was not, I wasn't staying with Acquirer. Um, I had done the integration work that we needed to do and was quite frankly was standing in the way of some careers because they were, the senior team were very, very capable um, and very, very incentivized. It made it really easy for me to step away. So it worked really well in that sense. So I definitely do. And how did you, and did you step away? Were you able to take value off the table in stepping away or did you have to continue to sort of put your lot in with the, the current management team, effectively become dependent on them to achieve the earnout. Yeah, I had to wait, ultimately. Yeah, so, you know, the board reports um, became interesting reading, particularly because, obviously, what happened in 2020, which was a lot, <laughs> yeah, right? COVID happened, um, which was uh, a bit of a moment of shock for everybody, but actually turned out for most digital businesses to be really good, right? Yeah, in, in the end, for sure. Two things that I've heard from other founders of marketing agencies in that have done earnout deals to potential problems, and I'd be curious to know if you ran into them and if so, how you overcame them. The first is, you know, when you sell to a, a big publicly traded agency holding company like an interpublic group or any of the any of the big hold co's, the, the part of the pitch is Look, we have all of these clients, all of these many, many conversations started globally. Uh, you're going to grow your business because we're going to introduce you to all these wonderful brands. And I mean, you just couldn't possibly not grow with the, you know, the, the scale of our, of our team. Sounds like a great pitch in principle. In reality, those client relationships are guarded uh, uh, feverishly by the people who own them. And so although in theory, Interpublic New York has a relationship with you know, Procter & Gamble, they're not about to give that up to some, some, some young guys in the UK because they happen to be part of the same agency, Holdco. And so it's a, it's a theoretical benefit of being part of an agency, Holdco, but not necessarily one that is real. I'd be curious to know what your experience was that on, on that score. <laughs> that's why i'm smiling um yeah it's it's a very big part of their pitch and um you know you're very you you know i think you know you go through a period of vulnerability when you're um in the latter stages of the deal because you know you start it starts to become real and every it's in the honeymoon period everybody gets on really well you know they're going well look you know we've just won x and that's worth a billion dollars a year to to our business we were bought by interpublic 
who were great, by the way, I have to say, they were great to us in every way other than the fact that we didn't ever see any of that value, which, you know, they, they sold to us hard through the process to your exact point. But then, you know, also, why would they give it to us? You know, and we were probably silly for believing it because they're going to end up paying twice, aren't they? So if they win all this business and then give it to us and then they're paying us on a multiple of, you know, our EBITDA, it's costing them a lot of money to give us that business. So I, I understood actually why it didn't come. I mean, it, I have to say that to some of the senior team, particularly it was very, very frustrating for them. Um, but I think my personal view was, well, actually we were probably just a bit silly to, you know, and a bit caught up in the moment to listen to it. And so we kind of should have and could have and did um, just kind of plowed our own thorough really and kind of did our own thing. But so, yeah, that was definitely our experience as well that never believe a, an acquirer when they say that they're going to give you loads of business. <laughs> <laughs> the second challenge I've heard that comes up is that the acquirer holds the purse strings and the budget that you need to achieve your earnout. So in other words, you mentioned you went and invested aggressively to build the business. You tripled your bid during the year for your earnout, which is amazing. But it begs the question, how did you get the budget to grow like that? Did you, did you paper that as part of the agreement that you were entitled to a certain growth oriented budget uh, or, or did you grow through cash flow? Like, how did you, how did you get the money to grow so quickly from the hold code? It is more simple um, through agency because they are fantastic cash flowing businesses. You know, they are. You know, you should if you run an agency well. You know, manage margins of you know sort of anywhere from twenty five to forty percent in reality, so you can afford to pay for that growth. And you know, we obviously spent quite a lot of time on the kind of protections within the SBA, the the sales document, um, that made sure that we controlled that money rather than it kind of just disappearing. And also actually another key part of that was making sure that they couldn't lump kind of centralized costs on us either, cross charges, et cetera, et cetera. And that wouldn't affect you know, the true EBITDA picture um, from an earner perspective because that obviously can happen. So, you know, we were, we had lots and lots of protections um, in the SPA to ensure that we could be masters of our own destiny ultimately. That's great. And, and SPA stands for Share Purchase Agreement for folks who are listening. It, it, that's what you mean by SPA? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Sorry. You, you end up, uh, when, you, when you end up Got it. spending a lot of time in the space, you end up using these, uh, these acronyms, don't you? Yeah, no, no, that's, that's fine. And again, for my listeners, different than a LOI, a letter of intent is a non-binding, uh, you know, suggestion of what the deal might look like, but it's non-binding. Whereas an SPA, share purchase agreement, is a binding document that has all sorts of goodies in it, including, in your case, uh, Simon, uh, a provision around not being unfairly uh, penalized with central costs from head office, as well as guaranteeing that the cash you had in the business wasn't siphoned off. And this is something for our listeners that we have to underscore because if, you, if you'd imagine you've been running your company for years and of course you control your bank account, you're the signing officer of the company, you do whatever the heck you want to do. You, 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 you undergo a share purchase agreement, you, you sign a share purchase agreement, effectively give control up of your company to somebody else. 
um, you may or may not be the signing authority on that on that bank account anymore. <laughs> and in fact, you probably won't be. And so the question then becomes, well, you agree that you want to hire some employee, for example, you want to invest in some marketing program. It's it's it requires you to get somebody to pay that bill, and if head office is saying, well, you, you didn't budget for that, or you know that that's not in 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 your plan for next year, all of a sudden you're out of luck. And unless you've done like Simon did, it sounds like you were very thoughtful in the way you papered your SPA so that you can you you could control um, the investments that you wanted to make to grow the business and achieve your own. Yeah, and I think you know. Not that I've ever been a massive fan of lawyers, but and still continue not to be. Um, but they are worth, it's worth you finding the best one you possibly can through that process would be very good advice. What was the most surprising thing about the earnout period for you? Uh, that's a really was good question. A, a curveball, something you weren't expecting. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think we expected because you know, obviously, as I said, you go through the process of honeymoon period, as you know, as we kind of termed it, and that you know, you all get really excited about what you're going to be collectively together, and they were like, you know, you're going to come in, and you're going to become the, you know. Uh, SEO and content kind of um, delivery mechanism for the all of Europe, you know, and you, you're going to spend your time going around all the European offices. You're going to teach them and integrate and how your processes work and all this kind of stuff. Everybody gets very excited about that. But of course, then the realities of day to day impact you. And what you realize is that you don't really integrate much at all until the earnout's finished because those two things often are mutually exclusive. Um, they don't play well together in that, you know, they want you to spend loads of time, you know, with all of their teams doing lots of nice stuff and, you know, and, and introducing people and connecting people. And obviously well, that's on the one hand. And then the other hand, you're, you know, going hell for leather, trying to grow the business as fast as you can because of the incentives that they ultimately have put in place for you. So, they don't play well together, those two things. And I think that was the biggest curveball for me, the, 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 the realisation, I think, that what you think you were buying in for and then what they incentivize you to do. It's like kind of sales commissions. I always found this. I never actually found the perfect example of a good sales commission that kind of really incentivized the right behaviours. And I think the same is true of um, when you sell a business, that particularly where there's an earnout, you are just can completely blinkers on, focus on, you know, creating as much value as possible. And that doesn't always play to actually the greater good. If that makes sense? It's It makes sense. Tremendous sense. I've heard, you know, integration is the enemy of an earnout, right? So if the, if the goal is to integrate and take advantage of all these wonderful synergies that you're being pitched on, well, that's great. Then why are you using an earnout uh, to 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 incentivize me? Because an an earnout is, as you well put it, Simon, it's it's like the the opposite of integration. It's like leave me alone. Exactly. We're going to run a thousand miles an hour to hit a goal to get an extra payment. And every hour I spend with your manager of such and such, you're talking about how all the synergies we could create together is an hour that I'm not hitting my earnout. Uh, and I think that's a really, really important thing for folks 
um, considering an earnout. And again, Simon, most of our listeners uh, run service companies. They they yeah. will be uh, susceptible to or or have to get comfortable with some portion of their proceeds uh, in an earnout or some sort of deferred payment structure to ensure that the value that the company has is transferred to the new owner. So it's a very important topic, and I'm glad you uh, you come to it with such thoughtful responses. Yeah. Are you up for a quick uh, lightning round of questions? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's end on a high. All right. Yeah, let's do it. So, a couple of you know, a couple of questions here, and and uh, feel free to go as long as uh, or as short as you want. The most questionable or Said another way, slimy trick an acquirer tried to play on you getting your business for less than it was worth. Good question. I, uh, I certainly saw that prior to the merger. So when we were a standalone business, I think a lot of inbound kind of would you know would would make you feel really great about the business that you're building and tell you how wonderful you were. And then the next conversation that you'd ultimately have when you sat face to face is they talk a lot about the fact that, well, you're not really and you know, your back office isn't enterprise, you know, kind of yeah, and you know, you haven't invested in this and this and this. And, you know, all right, your EBITDA is that, but then, you know, what sort of salary do you pay yourself? That kind of stuff. So you they're immediately chipping you. I'd say that. Mm. So this is the kind of bait and switch. It's the the warm embrace to begin and the <laughs> cold shower after. Yeah, Biggest exactly. mistake you made during the selling process. Biggest mistake you made if you had a, a mulligan, like they say in golf, that you'd like to just kind of take that one over again. What, what, what's the biggest mistake you made in the process of selling? Very simple one. I would say, however big or wherever they say that they set the cap so that they set a cap on ultimately the, the ultimate value that they would end up paying is irrespective of what happened was capped now for us that cap was in the mid eight figures and you know we were like well we're not going to get there um and we did and actually had that cap not existed then we probably could have should have been paid more um, and I've, I've also heard that. And I actually, interestingly, I heard that on the way in as well. Somebody actually told me that advice and I didn't listen to it. And it played out for us as well. So that, that I would say is a, a, good, a good example of, you know, listening more to people that have um, had the experience. That's a uh, that's super helpful insight. So thank you for that. What was the lowest point emotionally you reached during your exit. And I invite you, Simon, to, to reflect on from the moment you decided to merge with Sticky Eyes all the way through to the end of the four-year earnout with Interpublic, like what was the lowest emotional point you reached during that tenure? God, there were so many. Um, because it is very emotional for the founder. And I think um Ultimately, you have to say. I mean, there were lots of real, there were lots of challenges because you know I think when you people are complicated, money is complicated, and when you bring money and people together, um, which happens in these scenarios, um, things do become much more difficult than they were before. And you know, so we had some really difficult um, challenges, you know, as a senior team and stuff. And you know, I hold my hands up as being you know as much of a part of that as anybody else. And but I think ultimately the, the hardest bit was deciding ultimately to leave because even though 
as I explained it initially, objectively, I'd kind of done what I was going to do. And, you know, I wasn't staying in the business and I was kind of getting in the way. Actually, emotionally, it's very difficult for um, a founder to kind of walk away from the business that they built. And I found that really difficult. Um, and then once you're on the other side, and actually, funnily enough, I wrote a post about this probably a year or so ago now. Um, the process that you then go through as a founder, once you have finished and you are out and, you know, you open your emails the next day and it's gone from hundreds to zero. And, you know, then you have to ask really deep and, you know, meaningful questions about, you know, you as an individual, because, you know, you have the freedom that, you know, that an earn out a, a sale gives you financially. But of course, all the other questions remain of you as a human being, don't they? And they become more stark and more focused. And I found that process really quite difficult for a long period of time, actually, probably six to 12 months. Um, and not enough founders talk about that. They really don't. And so I actually, I did, I, I penned a post about it a little bit. Um, I'm happy to share it with you if you want to share it with the readers. But, you know, about that process that I went through personally afterwards rather than during being the hardest point of all of it because you have to discover actually what gets you out of bed again. Love, love this. We will put a link to your blog posts on this topic at builttocell.com so folks can grab it on your show notes page. What did you find? I'm, I'm really curious now about a tool. Could be a book, a course, a therapist, uh, uh, something that is very tactical and tangible that you found helpful during that soul-searching period where you know you had the money to do whatever you want, but that's a double-edged sword, right? That you can do whatever you want. So what do you want to do? <laughs> Again, was there a book, a tool, a, a, a speaker that you that you really keyed in on that you could share with others? Yeah, I think there are many. Um, that's a really, yeah, it's a really difficult question to put it down to a single thing. I mean, I think what I did actually is I um, spent a lot of my time searching out people that had even more experience than I did. And they were further along in that journey than I was. Um, and then just listen to them. You know, I bought a lot of people, well, several people, a lot of coffee um, and listened to them about that. Because I think what you, what they taught me to realize is that, you know, it doesn't really end there. And, you know, the thing, the same things that motivated you to create that value in the first place are never going to leave you. And so just be all right with that. And find the next thing where you're, you know, because I built a really mission-led kind of purposeful business, actually. And it's therefore about finding that thing again that really does get you out of bed in the morning and gives you purpose. Um, so I'd say it was actually picking up. How vulnerable body. were... Sorry. How vulnerable were you in those coffee meetings, Simon? I mean, did you did you go so far as to say, look, I'm, I'm really having kind of a tough time reconciling this or a tough time sort of absorbing this, like, give me some advice. Did you kind of, did you open your kimono and were you vulnerable to say it feels like to share with those folks how you were feeling? Yes. Yeah. I, I've always been like that. I mean, I, I'm, you know, one of those people that, you know, will always um, bow to the next, to the better idea, whoever it comes from. And I've always searched out, you know, and realized that I only know what I know and searched out people that know more. And, you know, you only get those answers if you are kind of, you know, offer that, I think, yourself that, you know, you don't actually know the answer to these things. 
um, and that you're searching for them. And so, you know, as you know, as per the blog post, really, I was, you know, I think there was a period where you know you talk a lot about kind of mental health challenges. I think it was really, it was really, really challenging for a period of time um, to find that thing. And um, you know, I don't think COVID helped either. You know, every, obviously everybody went through that, but you know, I came out the other side at the end of 19 and then COVID happened as well. So there was, you know, some further, you know, challenges for everybody during that. But, um, you know, I spent six months, six to 12 months, you know, picking people's brains really around, okay, so how do I figure this out? And, you know, because I don't know the answers and, you know, I'm, um, you know, I'm searching for them really. So, yeah, I was, I was very um, kind of, you know, heart on sleeve, I think, through that. Yeah, yeah, not, not something something we've heard a lot uh, and in particular when you combine the pandemic where not only are you you know the inbox is empty and you're wondering what to do but, but you're at home <laughs> and you know traveling and doing all the exotic things you thought about or dreamt about are all you know off the table what was the highest point you reached emotionally during the process Simon? what was the kind of highest point um I would say the uh, really interesting. I think that because closure helped, because actually what happened is obviously I left early, and therefore we didn't see the final earnout payments until. So I left at the end of 2019. We didn't see the final earnout payments until the March of 21, because obviously they had to do end of year accounts and then you know consolidate and all of that kind of good stuff. So I would say it was probably that moment, and as much, not because, not really because of the, the the cash landed, but more because there was closure, and, you know. And I knew that that chapter had ended, and that therefore I could kind of look to the future again, rather than kind of waiting for you know something else, some this thing to happen that we'd spent so long on. So I would say that was it was more it wasn't elation; it was more like you know that weight had been lifted, um, and you know relief. Yeah, 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 relief. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Yeah relief yeah 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 was there any resource that you turned to to help you get ready to go through the process of selling i realized that you talked to after people uh, about their journey but before going through the process was there a course a speaker a book anything that you turned to that you could point others to that was helpful for you no, I would say, I mean, I, 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 listening to podcasts helped a little bit, but obviously that was, it was relatively early in that process, you know, in that world. So there weren't that many around, but I think more so mm-hmm. I was lucky in that I had a couple of mentors, um, loosely speaking, that again, were more experienced, had done loads of this before, you know, were, were running big businesses and were requiring lots of businesses. And so, they became really helpful um, and became friends actually through the process um, of, you know, helping me understand what good looks like and what bad looked like and, you know, everything in between really. Last question. Tell me, so you bought yourself a trophy. What did you buy physically to, you know, commemorate the sale uh, of your business? We moved house, which we did. We weren't actually planning on doing. So I guess we bought a really nice family home. It's probably the thing that we did. Um, you know, but it, I, I was already running a you know a profitable business anyway. So we, and I'm not massively money money orientated. You know, I don't want to start flying private jet and all that kind of stuff. So I wasn't 
you know, it wasn't reaching for the stars in that sense. But yeah, we did, we, we moved house and, you know, we could say we've got a young family and stuff and certainly had at the time. That felt good to do that and, you know, to actually give a little bit to family and that kind of stuff as well and help them out and continue to do that. So, yeah, it was simple stuff really that, you know, most people I'm sure that you speak to talk about. Yeah, well, you'd be surprised. One guy bought him his his wife a coffee maker. I'm not sure if that marriage is still intact, but uh, I've heard every every you know possible uh, trophy. And I think personally, I I love it when uh, I hear founders you know have some sort of physical thing to commemorate the achievement because it is such an emotional journey, and I think it's a great. You know, and it doesn't have to be really expensive, but it's just something that you can turn to and say, "Yes, I did it. I, you know, I achieved this, and, exactly. and I'll, you know, forever, um, you know, have this to remember it by." So, I think a family home that you can enjoy lots of memories together is is incredible, uh, you know, trophy. So good for you. Um, so, I mean, I know people are going to want to reach out and get to know you on social media or or reach out. Uh, what's the best? place to do that tell people you know where to reach them if there's a website they should go to or uh, or a social media platform that um, that you prefer receiving uh, inquiries from i mean I've, I've been on twitter for a long time um so yeah i'm just forward slash simon penson on twitter and then you know probably the next best thing is um you know the kind of the, my latest kind of venture which we're just about to start building which is um scale.co.uk um which is will, will ultimately become a kind of a, a consultancy growth consultancy business for for service businesses for agencies specifically at the moment so you know we're planning to help people through that journey a little bit so you, you can find me there scale.co.uk um i think um direct email is simon.penson at scaled.co.uk so i'm always at the end of an email awesome and we'll put all of those in the show notes at built thank, simon thank you for doing this thank you john And there you have it for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed John's conversation today with Simon Penson. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's podcast, along with the article that I mentioned at the very beginning of today's show, you can go ahead and visit the episode page over at builttosell.com, where there you're not only going to find links, but also you're going to find definitions for all the technical terms that were used during today's podcast. If you know of someone who'd be a great fit to be a guest right here on the show, you can actually nominate them by heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate. There you'll have the opportunity to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week. 